BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's happening, guys? Happy Friday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. It's a loaded weekend for fight fans everywhere, and we got big fights in PFL, UFC, and boxing, and I can't wait to watch it all. Coming up on today's show, I'll ask you a very real question about Francis Ngannou. I'll talk about a guy you all need to keep your eyes on, and of course, I'll give you my official prediction for Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley. That's all at the end of today's show, but let's first take a deeper look at the fight and what it means to the MMA world. All right, guys, uh, let's take a moment. Let's take a look at Tyron Woodley versus Jake Paul, right? And this is the most fun. This is the only thing that keeps an industry or a sport, if you even want to call it that, of boxing alive is conversations like this. Talking about what this guy needs to do and trying to predict what's going to happen, then rubbing it in somebody else's face, tear the cage down, pop the popcorn, set the tent up, and move on to the next one. It's the only thing that keeps it alive, so let's do it. Let's talk about boxing. But you're having a lot of guys starting to weigh in on Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley. Gilbert Burns, by example, just did. Now, most guys in Gilbert Burns' spot who have fought Tyron Woodley and beat him are going to predict the guy they beat to beat the other guy, which in this case is Jake Paul. They all do it trying to look like they're being nice, but the real message there is they're shining their own wheels. Gilbert, who would pick Tyron to win after beating Tyron, is trying to get you, the audience, to connect the dots that I beat this guy. So if this guy in Tyron beats Jake Paul, I, therefore, have now beaten both of them. That is generally the message, but Gilbert went the other direction and he took Paul. Masvidal's weighed in on this. Usman has weighed in on this. Rashad has weighed in on this. And it starts to be very tough for me to get any inside information because the one thing that all four of them have in common is South Florida. That's where Paul's training. That's where T. Wood had lived and trained. Point I'm getting at, these are their friends. 
He's like, hey, just see out around town, or maybe he could hook you up and get you into the club. So you go to the media and you pick him. It's tough. Sometimes it's tough to know. Have any of those guys sparred with Jake? If you're picking Paul to win, you live in Florida, he lives in Florida, are you in the gym with him? Do you pop in and watch him? Do you have mutual friends who are in the gym with him and or pop in and watch him? I don't have the answers to that. I want to. I want to have some kind of inside scoop, but I don't. Nobody ever goes that far with it. They all give their opinion. They all weigh in on it, but they never go a little bit further. Go, look, I trained with the guy and, and then fill in the blanks. It just never happens. The closest that we've got was Mike Perry, who did spar with Jake and came out of it and paid Jake some real compliments. So it always gets tough for me, but the debate part of it is very relevant. Jake is young and hungry. Okay, great. I got clickbaited the other day, guys. I got clickbaited on one of the dirt sites that I go to that atrocious training footage of Jake Paul had emerged. Atrocious. That betters everywhere are nervous. The line has moved, which is a straight up lie. The line has moved after the atrocious training footage of Paul. I go click on it. Paul hit a heavy bag three times, and it was an old clip, and I had seen the clip before. It had only come out like a week prior, but the dirt sheet that I go to finally picked it up and called it atrocious. Then they had some jerk that apparently knew something about boxing that was going to tell you all the things that were wrong with it. And some of it was that he wasn't tight. <laughs> you gotta, You gotta be tight. And anytime you get these experts in boxing together, I mean, they would outdo themselves with who is dumber than who. And the only more fun you would have at sitting back and critiquing and laughing at somebody is if you got a bunch of strength and conditioning coaches together. One guy is going to run you uphill for 30 minutes, but the next guy is going to run you uphill for 31 minutes. And then you're going to have the grandfather, the guy who said, the I do the hardest workouts. Mine's the same hill, but I make my guys run it for 32 Minutes. I mean, you'll really never have more fun looking at a room full of idiots than you will strength and conditioning experts unless you meet a couple of boxing experts. Want to talk about who was tight. This was in the article, mind you. Now, in all fairness, I watched Jake hit the bag. I rewatched it in the video that I was clickbaited on, but I had already seen it before, and it was fine. He changed elevation, he throws it straight, and whoever did the critique didn't see Jake's last fight because that's exactly what he hit Askren with. He hit Askren with it. He changed elevation. He hit Askren again. He changed elevation a third time, got the reaction from Ben, came upstairs and knocked him out. So that straight to the body is very relevant. If you're going to make something and you're in Paul's spot that you're going to release to the world, that's a great shot to do because the world already knows that you're pretty good at it and he didn't have to be tight to get there. All the days I spent fighting, and I had a number of really great days, but I, I have one day that I took with me and I've never forgot. My coach is a man named Clayton Hires, but Clayton Hires was trained by a man named Kenny Adams. So one day I got to meet Coach Adams, who I'd only heard about. And Coach Adams is responsible for world and Olympic champions. He was the head coach of the U.S. Army. That's where Clayton had met him. So Coach Adams came in. We're on the set of The Ultimate Fighter. We're talking about body shots, and I always wanted to land a body shot. You guys ever see, though, somebody throws a, a jab at you and they slip outside, boom, they go like a shovel hook right to the body. Jose Aldo, every fight he has, boom, boom, he goes to the body, he comes back with that leg kick. I like how it looks. I always want to be able to do it. I've never landed a body shot in my life unless I've been on top of the guy. And that includes practice. I've wanted to, I just can't. So here's Kenny Adams. 
So I'm asking him different ways. I practice it every day, every day on the mitts, every day on the heavy bag, every day shadow boxing. I've never landed one included in the training room. Something about my body, something about the dynamics. So I asked Coach Adams for different setups, and he told me two or three, and he, he answered this whole question that I had spent years on. He answered the whole question start to finish within 30 seconds. He told me two or three different ways to get in. He said, but Chael, don't forget, if you walk up to a guy and you hit him right here, it's going to hurt. Thought about that for a second. Yeah, it doesn't have to be beautiful. I don't have to be tight. I don't have to slip. I don't have to set him up. I don't have to use footwork. I don't have to use reach. I don't have to do a goddamn thing. If I can take this hand and hit it right there, I'm going to hurt him. And that was the message of Coach Adams. One thing I had never tried to do. I never tried to walk up to a guy and hit him there. I tried to feel myself out. I tried to find my way in. I tried to reach. I tried to see where he was. I tried to slip. These are the things that I'd been taught my whole life. Coach Adams said, those things are good. Those are good ideas. If you walk up to him and you hit him right there, you're going to hurt him. And I just took that with me. I just took it with me. And then when I saw Jake do just fine on a heavy bag, which he was soaking wet, which means this was at the end of the workout, largely part of conditioning, I would guess. And I saw some other jerk, one say it was atrocious, but bring in some scumbag that talked about that he wasn't tight. He wasn't tight. <laughs> you can't help but laugh, right? I mean, the only thing more comical is when you get the three strength and conditioning guys together and the guy that works the hardest and runs you through the hardest workout has you do the same thing for 60 seconds longer. Next. Okay, I promise I'll get back to Paul versus Woodley later, but first, Let's transition to a guy who is beginning to draw a lot of interest in the MMA world. And then I'll tell you how all of it relates to the current heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. Gable Steveson, man, what a cool spot he's in. I, what everybody would dream of being. He's actually living that right now, which is he gets to decide where he goes. You guys know who Gable is, right? NCAA champion for Minnesota, still has eligibility left, but over the summer he went out, represented the country, won the Olympic gold medal. Boom, heavyweight. So now you got a young guy, 21 years old, handsome as can be, hasn't exhausted his NCAA eligibility. So that has to be on the table. In addition, he's uh, kind of like a protege of Brock Lesnar. I might be, I might be embellishing their relationship. What I do know about that is Brock went to Minnesota, still cares about the wrestling program, was the king of the heavyweights. Gable, now a younger guy, Minnesota, king of the heavyweights. Gable has appeared on Monday Night Wrestling. He's appeared with Stephanie McMahon on TV. And they've all announced that they would like to have Gable. They've even brought him in to Monday Night Wrestling after the Olympics so he could take a victory tour. It would appear that that window and opportunity is open. Great. Then there was talk from the Minnesota Vikings that they're going to look at Gable for a tryout. Now, that would make perfect sense, and I'm sure Gable would do a great job. I don't know that I buy that or there's any truth to it. I think that the Vikings had the sense that God gave Geese to attach their name to a young guy who could get them media attention, and it worked. The Dallas Cowboys, who don't have the sense that God gave geese. The Rams, the Raiders, everybody else who didn't say we're looking at Gable. Shame on you. Point for the Vikings. You should have attached yourself to him. I digress. Dana's jumped in the pool, says I'll be meeting with the guy. Scott Coker has met with him. My only point to you is that it appears to be wide open for Gable. What's he going to do? Before we get to what he's going to do, what would you do? Follow the golden rule of life. Put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Tell us how you would behave. 
And it's not as simple as you think. When you only have one year of college left, sure, the eligibility is something very special. Eligibility is this beautiful word that is taken for granted until you're out of it. But all it would do is put him in the NCAA ranks, which would take him back to a tournament of which he's already won. Where's his motivation for that? I don't know. I'm asking the question. It would allow him, should he grind out another 12 months, with or without intercollegiate athletics, to get his degree. That's a big deal. I would imagine that's a big deal to his parents. I would imagine somewhere within him he'd like to get that done. I was of the mind that he was lock, stock, and barrel delivered to the WWE. But the fact that he's talking about the Vikings, talking about Dana on social media, posing with Scott Coker on social media, it looks as though maybe that's not as done as we all thought. And the University of Minnesota, as recently as 24 hours ago, put out an interview and said, we expect Gable Stevens to be our heavyweight representative this year. I got a guy who's on the Minnesota team right now who says, we're told we have a heavyweight, and we're told his name is Gable, and they're already on campus and doing some workouts. So I think if I was to guess, and this is a revolving door, if I would have had a different guess a week ago and a different guess the week before that. But today, I don't know if I am, maybe... According to Minnesota, Gable is going to wrestle for them, which means any WWE, any pro wrestling, any MMA stuff would be put on hold. Now, MMA guys are weighing in. I think Ben Askren put him at like six months. In six months, Gable Stevens could beat Francis Ngannou. Henry Cejudo put it at three years. And within three years, Gable Stevens could beat Francis Ngannou. I don't know. We have seen so many wrestlers fall on their face that would surprise you. Ones that were great would surprise you. And it's not very often in MMA that you have a really big guy. Same as boxing, right? Tyson Fury has a hard time making the limit. Or Francis Ngannou, who's all of the limit. That's rare. It generally goes to that 230, 248. Little smaller guys generally move a little bit better. They can usually scramble a little more. Their conditioning and their endurance, they can use it in that size and their advantage as opposed to disadvantage. So it is rare, and Gable is all of the weight, but he's also built very different. He's a very solid, very good-looking athlete, particularly for that class. And it is tough. Like I, When Henry was weighing on this specifically, and Henry as a wrestling Olympic champion, I don't know if there's anyone better to listen to. Henry came over to the sport with the same exact skills and resume that Gable has. Henry put it at three years, but he put it specifically at three years to beat Francis Ngannou. That's where things get interesting. If you said how long till he could do well in MMA or even be MMA champion, you have a totally different conversation than you are specifically to beat Francis Ngannou. I don't know. But enough people keep blowing Gable up, but they start talking about his youth, and they talk how big he is, and they talk about the last time that he got beat, and they talk about how impressive he is. I'm not positive Ngano ever signs the contract and shows up and fights him. I'm not sure that Gable couldn't beat Francis Ngano at a press conference. I'm not sure. I could have this upside down, backwards, and wrong. It just appears that our champion in Francis is looking for something else to do then fight some of the top guys. It looks as though he can get intimidated. It looks. It looks as though Francis backed John Jones down prior to a press conference. That the greatest talent in the sport that we've ever seen got intimidated and went the other way, just like on the schoolyard. And now it looks as though Derek Lewis did the same. Right? I mean, it's one of these things. Gable to be the champion or Gable to be prominent in MMA, I think that three years is, is, is way too long. 
But Henry, who Henry's got the right to his opinion. Three years to beat Francis Ngannou, you're having a totally different conversation. Francis Ngannou came out and he said, I'm not even sure if I'm still the champ. And he might not be. I haven't decided either. I haven't decided if he's the champion either. I watched him win it, but I also watched George Masvidal win a championship. That apparently we're just all agreeing no longer exists and doesn't need defended. And that's where it becomes tough with Ngano. Is he the champ? He won it, and he didn't lose it. To my understanding, that makes you the champ. He won it, and he refused to defend it. In my opinion, that makes you eligible to no longer be the champ. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. If a guy wins a, a, a belt and he isn't defeated and didn't have somebody take it for him, he didn't fail the drug test, I mean, let's throw everything out here. Let's throw everything. He's still with the company. His contract hasn't elapsed. He hasn't been stripped, which is nothing more than a statement made to a media member. That is how you will look. I'm stripping him. You're no longer champ. Whether we like it or not, that's on the table, and that's how this is done. Daniel Corman, do you guys remember this when Daniel was about to be stripped? When Daniel was going after the heavyweight belt, but he didn't want to be stripped? So Dana was getting ready. You guys even know this story? Dana's getting ready to go to the world, maybe a, a form of the press conference, and tell the world I've taken the belt from Daniel. We're not going to do an undisputed title. We're going to put the thing up for grabs. Or I apologize, it won't be an interim title. We're going to take Daniel's belt. We're going to put it up to for grabs, and Daniel's moving over here. But Daniel didn't want that. He didn't want it to the point that he called Ariel Hawani in a frantic and told Ariel, who's a huge voice and media member, to put out to the world that I am relinquishing the belt. You guys might think we're splitting hairs here and that this is semantical. It's not. Daniel's right. If Dana goes to the press conference and says, we're taking it from you, you've been stripped. History will refer to that. If you beat him to it and you relinquish it, you've now relinquished the belt. Is there a difference? Not that I know of. Connor wants to make a big deal that it was a doctor stoppage instead of... A, it's semantical, but is it appropriate? Yes. Yes. Daniel was not stripped of that belt. He got to it before the press conference. He officially relinquished the belt. That's the way history should tell it. Now, look at Francis. He has not lost. He is still under contract. He has not been stripped. But he did not do what a champion does, which is defend. Is he still the champion? It's a tough one. He says he doesn't know. I saw him win it. I have not seen him lose it. No announcement has been made. So whether we like that those are the rules and that somebody could lose their belt over announcement or not, we still acknowledge those are the rules. So what does a champion mean? What does a champion do? It means you beat the guy prior to you in a title match under the unified rules at the agreed-upon weight class. A champion then defends. He does not have to defend successfully. By the way, Matt Hughes started that, that you're not really a champion until you defend the belt. That's a really cool thing to say. It's not true. Of course you're the champion. It's not true for one, but it's also not a courageous thing from a bravado standpoint because Matt Hughes didn't say it until after he successfully had defended the belt. If he would have said it ahead of time, I could give him some credit here.
He didn't he didn't make the statement till after it was done. Not to mention it wouldn't be true anyway. If you were the champion, you were the champion. But a champion does go out and defend. Or he becomes, it's not as though we, we rewind it and it never happened. He just becomes the former champion. Simple as that. We don't take away what Francis did. And this isn't Chael over here pontificating or Chael wondering or Chael being a dick. I'm quoting him. He said it. He said, I don't know if I'm the champion. I would maintain you are. You for sure were. We don't go back and erase that. You for sure were the champion. You don't have to do things that a champion does. Such as show up and defend the belt, which didn't happen. So Francis brings up a fair point. There's only so many rules to this, and none of them were violated here. He hasn't been released. He hasn't been stripped. He wasn't defeated. I believe by proxy, purely by definition, that makes him a champion. He also was not defending the damn thing when he was asked to, which is what a champion has to do. So I'll ask you guys, is Francis the champ? So that's a wrap on the drama at Heavyweight for today. But luckily for me and you, there continues to be a lot of drama happening at Lightweight. And all of us can't get enough. So let's try to break down and analyze Conor McGregor continuing to go after Dustin Poirier. What do you do with that? I am observing this and I am expecting to learn something. It's not something that I've necessarily seen before, succeed and or fail, that I identified and can bring to you guys. When you have a guy out on the injury list, which is Connor, when you have a guy who's moving forward, and in this case into a world title fight, who is Dustin, it's very hard to get them together. If Dustin were to lose to Poirier and that kicked the can, because don't forget the calendar matters. When is Connor going to be back? What's this rehab looking like? So now you have to have the calendar in your favor as well. But if Dustin is to lose to Poirier, I apologize, Dustin is Poirier, to lose to Charles Oliveira, thus making him eligible to just fight fellow contenders, we at least now have a way to do this. We have a way to get these guys together that is feasible. It's a very far time out to start promoting. Can we agree on that? We don't have the fight, and we may never see it. Can we agree on that? So once we identify these things, and knowing Connor being a master within this space, and knowing that he also would agree with us, he would go, I've got no fight here, and I've got nothing to monetize, but he continues to go after Poirier, it leaves you with, then what are we doing here? Which means we're doing something other than promoting a fight. Connor needs, like any human being, a motivation and a drive, and he's got every right to want to be motivated and to be driven to do something, and he's in a tough spot, which is to rehab the first and only injury of his life. And if he's using Dustin, even if it's publicly, even if it's a mythical fight that may not come about, but for right now it's what he's dreaming and what he's using to drive him to get the physical therapy done, to get the appropriate rest, to listen to the experts, if that's what he's doing, okay, now I get it. I don't know that Connor going after Dustin or bringing up the DMs or getting dirty with it and bringing the... I don't know that it's necessarily what you guys think it is, which is Connor attempting to pick a fight with Dustin Poirier and or draw attention to a fight with Dustin Poirier. And it's like anything, it becomes numb over time. It loses its appeal over time. 
Connor knows those things. And Connor's doing it anyway, which makes me believe Connor's playing a different game. He's not looking to get a reaction from Dustin, and he's not looking to get you guys to all agree that you want to see fight number four. He's looking to get himself in the right frame of mind to do what it is he needs to do, one task, one step at a time, which currently is rehab, get better. Have a reason for coming back. I will tell you that's very real whether guys make it or public or not. It's very real that a young man, 10, 11, 12 years old, when he needs to go out on that run in the evening, will picture walking into the octagon, or he'll picture walking onto the field, or he'll picture being in the Olympic Games. Connor's vocalizing it. He's vocalizing what his drive and what his motivation is. Whether we get there or not, is it, that's tomorrow's problem. It's tomorrow's problem. I think that Dustin should continue this. Dustin hasn't had to play back with Connor to get Connor to keep this going. Connor's handled it on his own. But I think if I'm Dustin and I'm Dustin's team, I don't kill all thought or hope of it, I continue to let him get my name out there. It seems as though there's an advantage to having the sport's biggest star using his channel, his medium, and his platform to promote you, which is what is happening. And whether Connor believes Dustin is a rival or not, Dustin needs to understand Connor is a partner who can also be a rival. But if we do get in together, we're doing business together. And right now it appears that Connor, I don't know that he needs Dustin. He wants Dustin. And he's using that as a motivation. Fair play. Fair play. I would encourage you, if you're attempting to analyze this, or if you're trying to put an answer as to the wonder of why Connor is doing what he's doing in the time frame that he's doing it, I think I just gave it to you. Dustin is his motivation. Dustin is the carrot. Dustin is the pot of gold after the rainbow, right? It's one of those things. Connor's in a tough spot, man. He's trying to feel better. He's never been in this spot before. He's had a built-in drive and a built-in motivation, same as all of us athletes, which is the competition itself, which is met with the most important part of any kind of a contract, the date. I know what date I got to weigh in. I know what date I got to make that walk. Connor doesn't have those things for the first time in his life. He's looking for motivation. I think he's found it. I think it's found it. Whether those guys get in there for part four or not, I think I would be a fool to start here, sit here and give you an analysis of why that makes sense or why we don't ever need to see it again. That's not what Connor is doing or what Connor is using Dustin and the image of Dustin for, at least not right now. He's using it for motivation, to do the right things, to go to the physical therapy, to heal himself. So when you're thinking and wondering, are you going to see Connor and Dustin part four? Or you're thinking and wondering to explain, to try to look like the smartest guy in the room as to all the reasons we will never see Connor and Dustin part four. Dustin is a pawn in a motivational game in Connor's mind, at least for right now. And that's okay. Give Connor his room. Coming up in a moment, I'll talk about the UFC's must-see main event that's going down tomorrow night. But before we get there, I'm in Florida right now for PFL playoffs to watch some really good fights. And I want to take a second to tell you about them. So guys, I'm going to be part of the PFL announce team for, for this Friday. And I was on a call with PFL, and the head of production was on the call. And he told me, as a first-timer, do not tell the audience this is a tournament. Stay away from the word tournament at all costs. And I simply said, why? 
The reason I asked that is I thought it was a tournament. And I love the idea that it's a tournament from one perspective, which is you, the viewer, understand that. You know what a tournament is. Take the politics out. Take all the bureaucracy out. Stand on your own. Advance on your own. Become champion on your own. It's a great thing about the PFL. Well, he answered my question. He said, no, it's not a tournament. There is a playoff. We have a season. We're unlike any other fighting organization. And he said, Chael, you are right. We acquiesce to your point that there's no politics and there's no bureaucracy and your skills will represent your standing at the end, but it's not a tournament. It's not a, sta a straight line bracket. There's preseason. There's during the season. There's qualification. He was just explaining all the differences to me of PFL versus other fight leagues. I loved it. I was in. I loved it and I was in, and I enough that I want to come and explain that to you guys. Explain the differences of what you're seeing with this product, which is largely one-fold, in that you are going to have a competitive architecture. You're not just going to have the power of the pin and the bureaucracy to decide who the greatest trash talker is, who's got the most followers on Instagram, gets to be on the higher spot, ultimately leading up to your main event. That is different. There's not a lot of sports and none in this atmosphere that that lives by. I've always resented the sport of boxing, and I resent it from a jealousy standpoint. I resent that it wasn't me, that I didn't know that ahead of time, that I didn't manipulate the system the way, say, Floyd Mayweather did. But you can become the world champion in boxing and not even be the best in your nation. I mean, right? Don't forget what a world championship is. It starts at a small level. You become the best in your city, you get to contend for a state championship. You become the best in the state, you get to contend for a national championship. You become the national champion, you get to contend internationally for a world and or Olympic championship. But you cannot step out of that process. You don't get to go to a national championship without winning your district, your city championship, right? I mean, there, there's a way to do it, and boxing doesn't have that. So if you become a number one contender, if you're standing opposite Floyd, by example, and Floyd got to handpick his opponents, there was only a couple of times ever that Floyd actually stepped in and fought the right guy. Now, that's not an insult to Floyd or his legacy. Floyd did nothing different than the guys before him. And eventually, throughout time, Floyd did get in there with all the guys. Floyd is the best. Not a commentary on Floyd. I'm pointing out to the, the idea that he could pick a Jesse Vargas. He could pick a Madonna, who turned out to be a stud, but Floyd didn't know that going into it. He could pick these guys, make them a number one contender, which in the world of sport, if you fight for a world title and you don't win it, you were then second. You were the second best in the world if you lose in the Super Bowl. You were second best in the world if you lose in the NCAA Finals. You were second best in the world if you lose in the gold medal match of the Olympic Games. It's just not true in boxing. It's straight politics. There is no architecture. I talked to Layla Ali about this. And God bless her, but she was, so, it was a podcast, publicly done. She stated for me her one and only regret in boxing was that she never went through the Olympic Games. She followed that thought to say, because that's the only way in boxing to know if you're truly the best. They called me the best, and I was undefeated. So, but Chael, I know inside that I trained like a professional under the tutelage of my father, Muhammad Ali, and I fought a, a bar fighter a couple of times. I said, what do you mean by that? What's that expression, bar fighter? Like in, a, in wrestling where I come from, we'll call him a fish. Somebody that's not very good, the, the expression is a fish. Me, you ever take a fish out of water and the fish just flops around? Somebody that's not good at wrestling, we call them a fish. They're out there flopping around. She, I thought bar fighter was an expression. She goes, no, no, no. I trained my ass off and the promoter brings in some gal from the bar 
that was willing to do it that wasn't any kind of a, a fighter at all. I stopped there in a number of punches and a number of seconds inside of the very first round. I had a whole bunch of fights like this because they thought I was good for a poster and I would like to know where I stand. I respected that tremendously, but Layla is pointing out and admitting to a problem as I see it with boxing. And boxing's not the only one guilty of it. We can get away with it in MMA as well. Perception is reality, and whoever the best is, whoever we shove down your throat and tell you is only because we don't have a competitive architecture of which the PFL is willing to take the risk and change. I like it. I like it, and I respect it, and I wanted to bring it to your guys' attention. I've always thought it was a tournament. I thought that's what you call it. I got smartened up a little bit on playoffs, on season versus preseason. Some of the things that it takes point-wise to find yourself in to that bracket. It was meaningful enough for me that I wanted to draw the distinction and bring it to you guys. And there's some killers that are going to fight on this card. Chris Camozzi, by example. Bubba Jenkins, by example. Bubba has been one of the bigger surprises in all of MMA. And that's all potentially going to change. Bubba got a win over Lance Palmer, which, whoa, kind of made everybody stand back and go, hey, this guy's pretty good. But it has been a long rise to success for Bubba, who has been cloaked in success in his, his entire life. Bubba won an NCAA championship by fall, I might add. And if you'll recall who his opponent was, it was David Taylor. In case you don't know who David Taylor is, David Taylor, as of three weeks ago, is now known as Olympic champion. The guy who won the Olympics was pinned in the NCAA Finals by Bubba Jenkins, who happens to be fighting this Friday, who's going to be commentated by me. All right, guys, to round out today's show, we got two big fights going down. I'm going to give you my official predictions for Paul versus Woodley and this must-see main event happening in the UFC's featherweight division tomorrow night. My official prediction, Giga versus Barboza. You want to know who wins? The fans win. Gag me with a smurf. Okay. I'm going Giga. I'm going, I'm officially putting the Chael Sonnen curse on Giga, and that's not easy, guys. Giga claims he is the best striker in MMA. He's convinced me. He has convinced me that he can go tit for tat with Max Holloway. By the way, who Giga called out. He convinced me he can go with Dustin Poirier, who happens to be a weight class too big. And in this case, he's going to have to go with Barboza. Now, as much as I'm willing to take a leap of faith that Giga is, in fact, the best striker in MMA, there's multiple realms to striking. So many people forget that. You want to talk about the best boxer. Well, you're not talking about the best striker within the best boxer. You're talking about the best person with his left and his right hand. When you start talking about striker as a whole, don't forget you got your elbows. Don't forget you got knees. And don't forget, in the case of Barboza specifically, you have leg kicks. Leg kicks are one of the most overrated and biggest wastes of time in the sport of MMA unless you do them right. I would encourage most athletes, throw it out. Learn it, practice, kick the bag a couple of times, and then forget that you ever learned a leg kick. Let me show you three ways to counter a leg kick, and then you come out and just hope your opponent is foolish enough to throw one and will end the fight. And that's not just the check kicks, right? Which you saw Weidman go through, Anderson go through, Connor more recently go through. Not to, those are part of the list, but you also have a straight right down the middle. Tim Sylvia did on Rico Rodriguez, just for point of reference, to win himself a world championship. Unless you do them right. 
if you do them right, like Barboza, what's so right about Barboza? First off, he's wildly powerful. The shin bone, which is used contrary to what your eyes may tell you, if you watch a leg kick on TV, you maybe think the guy's using his foot, kicking a guy in the thigh. You would be wrong. He's using his shin, or at least attempting to use his shin. A, a shin is in comparison to a baseball bat, right? If you just reach down and feel how heavy and hard your shin is, you run that into a guy's thigh at 60 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, which is what Barboza and some of the top guys can do. It is the same as taking a baseball bat and cracking the guy right in the leg. One day into kickboxing, your instructor will have used that example, but I'm going to grab it too because it's true. So when something is moving that fast, it's a car wreck, which is where the checks become so dangerous, but when they're not checked, when the setup is there like Barboza does, when the speed is there like Barboza has, Barboza checks many boxes. He wins, he wins the blue ribbon in many different areas, not just the leg kicks in all of MMA, but also the hardest and also the fastest. But I don't know if they're the best, if they're not as hard, and if they're not as fast. I mean, right, you, you need all three of those ingredients, or at least he does, to get away with them so that you don't end up in two pieces like, say, Conor McGregor. Risky business. Unless you're great at it. You can't be good. you got to be great at him, and he is. So what is Giga going to do to avoid those leg kicks? I don't have the answer for you, but Giga had better have one. And I don't know that Giga is as fast as Edson. But I know that Giga will mix it up, that he'll get in your face. I know that you need a little bit of uh, distance and separation for those leg kicks. It's not something you do in tight. It's not something where you've got to clench and you drop down and kick the guy in the leg. Something where you have a little bit of space. So if Giga can close that distance, if Biba can use that jab, which he's so good at, if he can throw that cross and some of those digs to the body, some of those hooks upstairs, if he can just take that extra three or four inches away of space, if he can keep it in a boxing range, which means within an arm's reach, if he does that, he will, by byproduct, take the kicks away from Edson. The likelihood of anybody, including Giga, no matter how good he is in the stand-up, to do that all night long, not very likely. He's going to get kicked by Edson. Edson has the ability to kick you one time and change you. One time he will change you. He won't wreck you. He won't ruin you. He won't stop you. He will change you. You will slow down a little bit. John Anik loves to use a word that I stole from him because it's so apropos, which is investment. John will say that when he's announcing. So-and-so just invested in a leg kick. Let me break that down, why John's using that word, okay? An investment is something you do now that pays off later. We all understand that, but John's right. In the sport of MMA, you crack a guy in the nose, you're going to hurt his nose right now. You blast a guy in the chin or in the temple, you're going to put him down right now. A leg kick is an investment, something you're going to do now that pays off later. It's very relevant. You see a guy that takes some leg kicks and his face doesn't change, his expression doesn't change. He takes a few more leg kicks, his face doesn't change, his expression doesn't change, but his stance did. He now, he's now a southpaw. That's one of the investments. That's where things change. Now a guy is coming out, leading a leg, which means all of his offense and or defense is completely different. It's because you hurt him. It's because those leg kicks changed him. It's because you made that investment. So that's going to be a large part of the game. This isn't just a fight between Barboza. It's not. And Giga, it's not. And it's not just about who's the best striker. It's not. It largely does have to do with those leg kicks. If Barboza can get to them, good for Barboza. If Giga has an answer, which I submit for you is as simple as take the distance away. If Giga can get within arm's reach, and you got to think about it that way. And I love to use that example. I got that from my father. 
Most people's fathers will tell them, you can defend yourself, make sure he throws the first punch. If he throws the first punch, you can protect himself. My father told me the fight starts as soon as he is within arm's reach and you don't need to let him swing first. If there's a problem and he gets within arm's reach, the fight is now on. And my dad's right. And I only bring that to you because it's just an example that I remember. But if we're yelling at each other from across the way, we have a level of protection. If you close that distance, we have a level of protection. If you were within arm's reach, you have now started a fight and I can go first. And I bring that to you only... And arm's reach is just what it sounds, guys. Put your arm out if you can reach him. If you put your arm out and you cannot reach him, even by an inch... It's a different story. He's not within arm's reach. And that is where Giga needs to keep the fight, within arm's reach. He can do it clinched. I don't think Giga's going to come out wrestling heavy. I don't think that he's got an overwhelming wrestling ability on Barboza. However, if Giga fights him at space and thinks that he's safe, he's going to come out of there limping. That's where Edson needs to keep you to have those kicks. Crowd him. I think Giga's going to do that. It's a huge opportunity for Giga, who deserves a huge opportunity. It's his first time in this kind of a spotlight. It's his first time testing himself in championship rounds. There's a lot of uphill battle that Giga's going to have to overcome just from an emotional side. But I bought into the hype. He says he's the best striker. He says he can outdo Max Holloway. He says he can outdo Dustin Poirier. Question is, can he stop the kicks? Can he stay crowded with Edson Barboza? I'm cursing. I'm, I'm picking. Yeah, Giga can. Giga wins this fight. My official prediction for Tyron Woodley versus Jake Paul. Guys, I'm going T-Wood. I would love to tell you why. And, and I'm not in the same camp as so many are where the Pauls are just YouTubers and these guys are jokes and these aren't tough guys. I am far from that. And I think you guys are too. I think you are too. But you weren't always... You weren't always, we learned a lot when Logan got in there with Floyd, and we learned a lot when Jake got in there with Ben, and it wasn't just the outcome, it wasn't that they both just won. Talk Jake specifically, and look what he was up against to go in there with Ben Askren. Ben was 17-2 and in MMA, had two world championships in two different weight classes, had made an Olympic team, and had dealt with pressure. Jake had done none of those things. Jake had fought nobody that did any of those things. So what's it like... When you told everybody how tough you are, and now it's fight night, and you're in the back. Then you get into the back, and the program and the production that you're now working for are a bunch of scumbags. And you're, you're having to see a concert play out in front of you. And you're getting a little sprinkle of sport. And you're listening to the announcers who show up drunk and or high. And all of a sudden, all the professionalism is gone. All of a sudden, I've worked hard, I've put a training company in, I've come here for serious business, and the people that are overseeing it are anything but. As a matter of fact, that guy calling the action is stoned. I mean, what's that like? In all fairness, there's a lot to deal with, not to mention the show was way too long. And my, my goal here is to not insult Triller and the fact that they had a six-hour show that should have been done in about 90 minutes. It has to do with a compliment to Jake Paul, who put up with that, who had to know when to warm up who had to put the nerves behind him, who had to know when to walk out, had to go out there and perform. And if you're in the school that he landed a lucky punch on Ben or not, go ahead and be. He still threw it. And he was still within reach to throw it. And it still had a lot of power on it. And it still succeeded, stopping a two-time world champion who was once an Olympian. I mean, in all fairness, Paul showed a lot. Just showing up. 
He gets that same credit against T. Wood, and I think that Paul has many ways to win. If Paul is to go the distance with T. Wood, that's going to be a win for a lot of people's mind. If Paul is to win a round against T. Wood, that's going to be a win for a lot of people. When you start to have those pressures or lack thereof in your favor, it can be very advantageous because it's not true for T. Wood. T. Wood has to beat him. T. Wood can't win a round and lose the other seven or, or any mathematical formula to that. T. Wood can't hurt Paul but not get his own hand raised at the end of the night and have some kind of a moral victory. T. Wood has to win this fight. He can lose rounds, that's true, but he needs to win. He has to win this fight, period. He's a former world champion. He is a future Hall of Famer. He has to win this fight. There is no moral victories here. So what does that do? Does that help a guy? Does that motivate him? Does that make your marching orders very clear? It does for some athletes. Does it put a pressure which ultimately creates a stress and puts a fatigue on you? It does for some athletes. I don't have the answer. I just know that when you look at Jake Paul, you need to see a tough guy. I think you're starting to, but you need to. It's appropriate. He's a bigger guy. He's a taller guy. Does size and or reach matter? Not necessarily. Fight announcers love to come out and shove that down your throat and up your ass about who's taller and who's got the reach advantage, but you're not going to find very many guys in the history of fighting that had longer arms and therefore won. You're just not. Muhammad Ali, he had a pretty good reach for that time and in an overall height. Mike Tyson never had a reach advantage or a height advantage. I mean, you start to see the difference, right? It's something that somewhere a long time got put up there on what's called a full page and everybody makes a big thing about it. I don't know that Jake Paul being bigger is overly advantageous. I don't know that him having a longer reach is overly advantageous. I think that T-Wood moves very well. We know and can concede that they both have powerful hands. We know that because we've seen Jake Paul knock guys out with 16-ounce gloves and we know that Tyron uh, has it because we've seen him guys knock guys out with 4-ounce gloves. Great. Don't want to get hit with one of these guys. Now let's look at the defense. Who is better and or more likely to get out of the way of the punches of their opponent? We haven't seen Jake get out of the way of very many punches because we haven't seen very many thrown at him. We've seen T. Wood get out of the way of thousands of punches, but we've also seen some hurt him. So it's, it's one of these things where we have some evidence, we have some data, but how do we analyze and how do we interpret that data? I believe that boxing's a real sport. No matter how much it keeps getting presented to me that it's not. I think it's a sweet science. I think it's a skill. No matter if I saw Connor go with the best guy to have ever done it, Connor who had never done it, or I saw Logan Paul beat the best guy who had ever done it. That's tough. That's tough evidence to look in the face and then still maintain that boxing is a sport. I think it is. I think fighting is a hard thing to learn. I know for sure that conditioning is real. I know that grit is real. I know toughness is real. I know dealing with pressures and closing out a night in a main event spot are real. And these are all things that I have to give in T. Wood's favor. I think T. Wood moves really well. And there also seems to be something within human or viewer psychology. When we haven't seen a guy do it, we therefore deduce that he can't do it very well. That is a myth. That is a nomenclature is false and has been proven false, but we still see it. How is Jake going to do in the eighth round? We've never seen him in it. I bet he can't hold up. That doesn't mean he can't. But I'm guilty of that as well when I give you an analysis. T. Wood can go all night. I've seen him. T. Wood can fight championship rounds. I've seen him. So how will Jake do when he's tired and when he's hurt? These are things we haven't seen because of the level of success that Jake has had. He's been too damn dominant. 
You want to hold that against him? Is that fair? No, it's not fair. Do I hold it against him? Yes. T. Wood gets the win. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. It's a stacked weekend for fighting. I'm off to broadcast tonight's PFL fights, and I'll be watching the UFC tomorrow night, and of course, Paul versus Woodley. I'll be back on Wednesday to talk about all of that with you. Until then, I am Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome. <laughs>